Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another interseason episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, is Matthew Stockton. I'm all different kettle of fish. Thou shalt not fuck with this. My shit. I tell him like this. It's like Shakespeare with a little twist. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. You're welcome. And of course, also as always, joining us is Tim Matum. He which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. He would not die in that we would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, tomorrow is St Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what, feast, what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, while any speaks that fought with us upon St Crispin's Day. Uh, Henry the Fifth, Act Four, Scene Two, Three, three. Four, three, three. 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 Yeah. Spock, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that matters. Spock. <laughs> nice work, Tim. Thanks. Admittedly, little thing here, whenever there's an adaptation in film, you will notice they have the start and they have the end. They cut the middle the yes. fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare repeats himself. They, they know the, the first few lines and everybody knows like, and St. Chris Prince Day! Yeah. Day! Yeah. yeah. And everybody shall live this day and see old age. Just, no, nobody remembers that shit. It's like, <laughs> Uh, what's line 26? I can't remember. <laughs> if Matt did a long speech, my other option was going to be, oh, I'm being chased by a bear. Uh, <laughs> uh, behind the scenes, behind the curtains, Tim sent me a message privately on the old uh, um, messenger we had oh. um, interact with. And it just said, you have no excuse, Matt. No excuse <laughs> oh, yeah. for not having an intro. <laughs> and admittedly, I was like, like always, it's too much, which we will definitely come back to far too many times in this episode. There is too much. Yeah. And then the reason you have no excuse, Matthew, is because in this episode, we're talking about maybe the most influential writer in the history of Western fiction. Maybe. I think that's a, that's a reasonable estimate to say. We're talking about, particularly, obviously, we're focusing on films. We're not going to suddenly turn into a, a play podcast or... <laughs> Or a literature podcast or anything like that. We're gonna pivot into pure coverage of the sonnets from here on Mm. out. Welcome to Bill Waggle Daggers. (laughs) 
Plonk! <laughs> is, that, is that your theatre critic, like, alter ego? You've got redwaggledagger.co.uk and billwaggledaggle.co.uk. <laughs> Bill Waggledagger is what my um uh, my, first, my primary school teacher taught us how to remember Will Shakespeare's name. It's like, it's Bill, William, Shake, Waggle, Spear, Dagger. And we all thought, no, Spear it's dagger. William Shakespeare, and we know it's William Shakespeare. We don't need this weird he's, bullshit. He's one of the most famous people ever. I know. But you, don't you know what's stuck in my head since then? Bill Waggledagger. Bill Waggledagger. <laughs> I should have opened with that. <laughs> well, we're talking in this episode. We are going to be talking about the film adaptations, both direct and indirect, of uh, the the poet, the the sonnet maker, Bill Waggledagger himself. It's it's going to be an interesting discussion, I think, because oh, it's yeah. really something we've not really touched upon: is adaptations in this way we've obviously covered it a lot in the main series and even a couple of mm. times in the interseason episodes because you can't avoid we've talked about a lot of comic book movies and movies that have been adapted from novels and adapted from you know remakes of other films from different languages or or video a style off as a play shit. and video games and all this kind of stuff but adaptations of william shakespeare's work permeate more culture than i think people realize and Granted, we're being very Anglo-centric, we're being very westernised here, we're being very English and British about the whole thing, but it is such an inherent part of our fiction and our culture as as British people. And there are so many more things. In, in research for this episode, there are so many more things I had no idea we're like, oh yeah, this is basically Romeo and Juliet. It's like, oh yeah, of course it is. <laughs> oh, this, is, this, is this is basically Hamlet. Oh yeah, of course it is. The, the famous one, and I know we'll get onto this later, but mm. The Lion King is basically Hamlet. Is the one mm. that, that's the one that, like, when you're young <laughs> and you're like, oh, God, I want to talk about fucking Shakespeare in English class. <laughs> Piss off. Uh, you want to watch The Lion King? Yeah, I want to watch The Lion King. The Lion King's <laughs> some of the best Disney films ever. That's Hamlet, motherfucker. You're learning while you're watching, it's, whether it's, you like it or not. <laughs> it's, like, oh. it's, it's Hamlet meets uh, another like Japanese animated film from like 1980 um, the white or whatever Kimba the white lion Kimba the white lion yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly but it, it, it's that kind of thing where like I said there were so many other films I had no idea whether I've just heard the name or I've even seen the film and not really thought about it we'll talk about all the different iterations as much as we can because otherwise we'd be here for six hours but oh God, yeah. we're gonna kind of get into Direct adaptations, indirect adaptations, and a little bit of stuff in the middle there as well. But Matt, why don't you just kick us off with the influence that Shakespeare has had on yeah. our culture and our language and cinema as we know it, basically. Time for a lecture. With Matthew's doctor. Yes, sit down, children. Uh, everything you know is a result of imperialism. We <laughs> fucked the world um, in the mouth. <laughs> so, okay, um, very famously, at the height of the Islamic world in the 900s. Um, uh, maths and science and such was their shit, basically. That's why we have Arabic numbers and everyone goes, oh, it's a fucking disgrace. Like, no, the numbers you're writing, one through zero, are Arabic numbers. The same way that proliferates through cultural assimilation, also more importantly through invasions and such, is you bring with your empire your culture in a positive and a negative way. Let's face it, mostly negative. Usually um, negative. Yeah. And subsequently, the works of Shakespeare are around the world because we took it with us. 
Um, there are famous poets around the world who are just as good as Shakespeare, but the difference is Shakespeare's more widespread by us. So the British Empire spreads us around in all forms, and the English-speaking world her heralds it as, as the greatest fiction of all time, greatest stage plays, endearing, enduring characters and, and situations and scenarios that transcend borders and boundaries. This is technically true. And also the influence it's had on language alone is 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 hugely impactful. I mean, just to reel off some of a, a few, just like the phrase wild goose chase, knock knock who's there, dead as a doornail. There's so many idioms we just sort of take for granted that are in fact, for lack of a better word, quotes. I can't think of it. I think the, 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 the language equivalent is if, say, for example, in 400 years time, if people are saying, ah, you got Thanos. It's like, obviously, <laughs> Thanos is a Greek word in the first place. But at the end of the day, it becomes part of the, um, the, the general language. Mm. It's like, ah, you Kal-El motherfucker. It's like, <laughs> why do we say Kal-El motherfucker? Just means a nice guy. Oh, okay, fine. And that's kind of the thing. You don't know where the origins of it come from. It's like, oh, this comes from, like, Taming of the Shrew. It's like, not to it? turn Shakespeare into wrestling talk, because, you know, Ooh. that's me. Hello. This, this, this is my life. But... They recently announced, Dictionary.com recently announced adding the word jabroni to its collection of words. Oh, shit. Which is famously used by Dwayne The Rock Johnson back in the day mm. um, and was, yeah, apparently originally coined by the Iron Sheik, who is known for, how do I say this, colourful use of the English language, mm. which is not his first language. He's Iranian, I think. But yeah, the jabroni is now officially a word in dictionary.com and, and shit like that. We, we, yeah. I, may, I'm, I joke about that. Like, oh, no, like, one of the language rock, is silly words from one of his promos and calling, mm. you know, one of the commentators a jabroni or one of his opponents a jabroni is an influence on language. But the fact that culture and especially now we're having sort of like text speak and the language of the internet and all that kind of stuff influencing it. Mm. It was the shame. It was the same shit, just like four hundred years ago, yeah. <laughs> basically. And it the was fact popular. That it's, the fact that it's sustained that period, you mm -hmm. know, and and there's still so you know, it's it's basically it's like second only to the Bible in terms of like, yeah, phrases that we still use today that are invented four hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, same same sort of time period. Uh, John Milton was writing Paradise Lost. And was trying to describe the palace and hell and come up with the word pandemonium. We use that word now. Uh, well, mm. some people do, obviously. Um, and it's, it, there's a lot of cultural influences. We're like, we're going to make up a nonsense word, and it becomes part of language because I say, as I said earlier, uh, language is fluid. It evolves, it changes, and so on and so forth, and it gets added to. Especially very derogatory phrasing, but a mongrel language like English, which is such a fucking mess of stuff. It doesn't have. It, it's well, it, it's so many. Uh, Germanic and French origins that just bash together that make this thing. But it's so easy to learn quickly. You can just go, oh yeah, English, there it is. But then you realize there are so many caveats and rules. It's like, oh, this is a, this is a fucking turd. <laughs> this is a, t I mean, I get it. It's, it's, it's my language. It's what I speak. But at the same time, and as again, as, as for the three of us, as, as writers, you will always get shit wrong. You could be learning it from birth and you will get shit wrong because it's so um, adaptable and all my stuff. Anyway, Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is popular, as I say, because it was it was taken around the world by us. And we, we told people this was what real 
art was. This was real stories. And we These savages need to learn their culture. Mm. But Shakespeare, as a writer... Okay, we're not going to address the whole fucking thing about whether Shakespeare wrote these things or not. We don't care. Some fucker wrote them. This is the pseudonym, whatever it is. not the man. Yeah. But the influences were based on taking familiar properties and reworking them into another format. So it's be like, ah, it's familiar, but with a little thing going on instead, I mean, a different setting or something along there, which is exactly what we have in contemporary cinema. I'm going to watch a Fast and Furious movie. I know what I'm getting. It's fine, but it might be a little bit different in places. It's like, yes, yes, you're getting point break with cars. We understand. <laughs> or you started that way. Now you're getting superhero films with cars. Um, but as I say, it, it's not that Shakespeare is better than anything else. It's more enduring than anything else at this point. And I think there's there's definitely, you know, for all the debate there is about, you know, the, the way in which Shakespeare has kind of fought his way to the top of the pile and maintained it in terms of, you know, cultural impact, you know, sustained by stuff like the fact that, yeah, we took it around the world on our British Imperial power tour circa mm. 1500 Past onwards. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and stuff like that. And the, the the controversies over, oh, you know, maybe he didn't write all of it. Maybe he did, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And certainly you can take each individual play and probably go like, oh, well, you know, he took this element from there and that bit from there. I know like Romeo and Juliet, there's like three different plays that he kind of smushed yeah, into a, yeah. a blender to come up with the plot. But he remains an like excellent writer in terms of language you know and we've we've literally definitely, just, we, definitely. you know we spoke about how enduring his turns of phrase are so you know there's definitely value to him beyond just like oh he is this big name that everyone knows because they study in school like there's sure. a there, there is a reason that he has sustained and even back when he was still alive and these plays were first being put out he occupied a very unique niche in culture where you had you had royalty going to see them and you also had like the poorest lay people you know he mm-hmm. was he mm-hmm. was populist entertainment in his day you know he was he was the equivalent of the MCU i would say he is a christopher nolan in that mm. he does things that are considerably almost impossible to do but palatable to everybody and instills something within you even though at the end of the day it's fast food. Yeah. It's it's the same stuff as everything else, but it's packaged in a way that makes you go, shit, that was really fucking good. <laughs> That's actually a disservice to Shakespeare. Nolan doesn't write anything as well. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, from a contemporary equivalent of, yeah. you will have highbrow academics saying, this is the best stuff ever, and the general public saying, I have to see the new Nolan film, which is such a strange... Because you, you will still have with like the MCU, for example, you will have a lot of people saying like, oh, no, no, you know, a lot of snobbery and stuff. It's whereas not Nolan's cinema. Not- Martin Precisely. It's exactly. It's it's a it's a it's a theme park ride or whatever. Yeah, I I think Shakespeare and being adapted is basically just. I mean, if you take like the plays of Kit Marlowe, same sort of period of time. Faust is is just as enduring a, a tale. Well, it's obviously not his. His version is good, but he didn't you know invent the damn thing. Um, but he died in a pub, so fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say that Shakespeare had him killed, um, but I don't give a fuck. But we should we should talk about because obviously the impact of Shakespeare is huge. The the reach of Shakespeare is huge across the globe. But before we get to Shakespeare's adaptations of his work, we should talk about the thing that the people don't. I think I think we never really give this full credit. Um, 
the world is perceived through the mediums with which you absorb. So at the end of the day, if I say, you know, like, oh, okay, uh, close your eyes and picture um, an Englishman, that will conjure up a very, very different image for a lot of people. For some people, it'll be a celebrity. For others, it'll be a bowler hat wearing motherfucker with an umbrella. For some people, it'll be a football <laughs> thug. It depends on what your interpretation is. Some people might picture us because they're weird. Um, but the point, the point is that at the end of the day, you take what you've got from your mediums, whether it's podcasts or film or television or whatever. So Shakespeare and his works, not the things he's done specifically, but about him, there are two or three films I want to just bring up briefly because these also dictate how we see the things surrounding it. So, for example, it's just a given that Shakespeare is a certain type of individual. And then over time, we question that cinematically. So, for example, um, have you guys seen the film Anonymous, the Roland Emmerich film? The most un-Emmerich of Emmerich films? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, so director of um, Stargate, Independence Day, other big huge disaster movies, did a film called Anonymous with recent fans and various other individuals. And it's playing up to the whole, you know, Shakespeare didn't write this shit, it was Lord who the fuck ever. It's fine. It's not that good. But it's functionally fine. It's a story. Then we have Stage Beauty, which... Have you guys seen Stage Beauty? Nope. Nope. I'm it's aware Claire of it. Claire, Claire Danes yeah. and um, Dr. Manhattan. Yes, uh, Billy Crudup. There we go. I was about to say Jim Caviezel, but no, it's Billy Crudup. <laughs> and it's about the idea when uh, Charles II, I want to say, yeah, Charles II, uh, in his revision, it was like, okay, we need men to play men on stage, women to play men on stage, not as was in Shakespeare's time, men portraying women on stage. Because women couldn't act, so don't be silly. And Stage Beauty is about one of the first actors on the British stage who went underground to start with as a woman. Uh, turns out that she was actually quite shit to start with because, of course, there was no... <laughs> but she was a woman, so the sensation was like, oh my God, a woman playing a woman. How outrageous. And then playing this role of Othello and things like that. An evolution of, again, there. And then most, maybe not egregiously, but mostly recently, shall we say, Oscar Best Picture winner and also Judy Dench winning for like, what, five minutes of screen time, <laughs> Shakespeare in Love, which I assume you guys have seen Shakespeare in Love. Yes. Yes, yeah, I have. And Shakespeare in Love, again, I think these kind of things dictate to people how they see the past, how mm-hmm. they see the world of Shakespeare, shall we say. Because while you can have so many things, which we'll come back to in a minute, taking the the almost um, transparent animation frame as it were of of the actual play and transpose it to pretty much anything anything about shakespeare specifically or his plays on stage have to be from a certain time period have to be a certain way it's almost always a a costume drama kind of situation but they all even them even anonymous even stage music even shakespeare love seem to be about the fucking plays because you can't obviously get around the whole i know it's a silly thing to say like a biopic is like we're obviously gonna talk about the things he's done but even then whether it's played up for laughs, like in Shakespeare in, in Love, or alternatively in, in honors, the actual situation, like, oh, we're trying to incite an actual French aggression, hence the the St. Crispin's Day speech actually being a rallying cry to get the mob on side. So it's like, well, you know, how much of an agent was he for yada, 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 all very hypothetical, blah, blah, blah. Matt, I can't believe that you are ignoring perhaps the best representation of Shakespeare oh. uh, on screen. Although it not, I don't think he actually appears in this but certainly talked about uh, okay. which is uh centrinians 2 the search for fritton's gold <laughs> where it where it transpires that shakespeare was actually a female pirate 
yeah. who wrote a final play to reveal that she was a woman. I didn't. I thought you were actually going to say where Patrick Stewart plays a statue of Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet, but you didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo but and both Julia. two, both two are absolutely worth adding to our, <laughs> our, our list. Yeah, entirely. So obviously the man is a thing, but we won't talk about the man too much. We're going to talk about the work. Yeah, fuck um, the man, man. I think it's whenever... You, Damn the man. Save the yeah, empire. <laughs> whenever you have an author, you do get wrapped up in a lot of these things. Like, you, like Tim said earlier, the, the, the mashing of, of influences from other plays and other folktales and shit like that. That's just... And, you know, like, oh, it's drawn on Orpheus and Tristan is old and all these different bits and pieces. Like, well, yeah. Yeah, almost everything's a fucking fairy tale somewhere along the line. It's just, you know, Aesop's fables kind of shit. But, it, but in this instance, yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about the works being brought to cinema because obviously some some people would say that vaudeville and the theater naturally extended to silent movies when film came about it's like oh how do we do film how do we shoot this how do we create movies and of course the natural reaction was we'll just do the theater and just film it yeah <laughs> and of course that's why silent films are so over the top it's partly because you're obviously conveying things completely without sound but you had title cards so you didn't actually need that over the top really uh, theatrical performance sort of stuff but it was it was it was a sort of carry on a leftover from the the theater and as you got things like um the the 20s movie the um, passion of joan of arc where it became very stripped down very serious and very realistic and they go oh hang on this isn't this isn't the usual theater we're used to the camera is very close and you're like hang on the camera can go close uh, with the first <laughs> close-ups and then you've got sound and more realistic performances and it was still kind of theatrical because it's still shot in a stage that is basically like the old classic Hollywood thing. It wasn't always a controlled environment. So you'd be on a sound set. So you'd end up having the sort of a multicam kind of uh, a, a stage for lack of a better word. They, I mean, they call it a sound stage for God's sake. Um, and then you get to the stage where you are eventually like the 60s, 70s and so on and so forth, making movies with much, uh, much freer, more realistic, but Shakespeare still endures through all of them. Yeah, and I think there's there's something very interesting to be said there because you are when you start out and you are taking theatre as your inspiration of like how do we make movies, how do we how do we tell stories in this way, and you look to theatre, then obviously you're going to use Shakespeare as uh, because you know in a lot of ways his name has become a kind of byline for you know oh well this is sophisticated upper class you know kind of uh, rich cultural uh, fodder. Um, and then as cinema becomes more and more ambitious, you start, you get that, that kind of period where the productions are still very, um, traditional in, in the way mm. that we would kind of look at them. They're still very, they're going to be set during the period that Shakespeare, you know, originally intended them to be set in. You're sure. going to, you know, have all of those kind of things. And, you know, it is you know, even today, when we get something that was originally a stage play and it's translated to film, people will talk about the struggles of translating something that is designed 
to work on the on the stage where you yeah, have for example yeah. a limited number of locations and you can't do certain types of you know action or you can't do certain types of storytelling you can't you know you can't it's extraordinarily hard to do a montage in mm. theater you know it's yeah. doable but it's you know it's not really uh, easy to do in the same way that theater can do things better than cinema sometimes and it can exactly. have a powerful because you can play with the audience a little bit more because they're there and there's a reciprocal nature of knowing where to go with it yeah um, like so, the film cats yes <laughs> the perfect example of a stage adaptation <laughs> as cinema progresses you've had that very natural evolution of taking shakespeare and and starting to say like okay well we know we can do this like it's a stage play, you know, and film it in that very, like you say, this kind of sound stagey type thing and basically mm. translate what would be a stage play, just plonk a camera there and then occasionally do a close up. And then you start to get more ambitious adaptations where you're like, OK, well, you know, what what does it mean that we can, you know, we can shoot this on location somewhere or, you know, we can do all these other things. We can, you know, when we're telling these historical plays where there's a battle in them and that would yeah. previously just mean like four blokes on either side of the stage rushing each other for 30 seconds of stage combat. It's like, yes. oh, no, we can actually we can actually do a battle here, you know. Uh, we can film a war. We can feel, yeah, and, and so you get those, that evolution <laughs> of how... Shakespeare is told, you know, and uh, to to the point where if you took something nowadays that was even a very much like a kind of uh, a straightforward adaptation of Shakespeare, <coughs> there would be a whole bunch, you know, something that was that was aiming to be very faithful. There would still mm. be a whole bunch in it purely because it was cinema rather than theatre that would never exist on the stage but yeah. that because you're using cinema's tool set to tell those stories you are making those changes and you're taking advantage of the different things that film can offer yeah in the same way as we said with regards to changing from silent movies to sound suddenly you can play with things a bit more suddenly sound effects and music can be used in a different way and you know actually hang on a minute i can control this in a different way and as you say the the limitations of the stage aren't the limitations of film obviously there are limitations to both but if you take it let's take henry v there are three versions that come to mind for me so very famously there's the 1944 version with Laurence olivier Laurence olivier would come back at multiple times because he's a british actor who had one exceptional gift he made shakespeare sound like he knew what he was talking about because the language is <laughs> well, we'll definitely come back to the language but the language is such a barrier for so many people so it's a straight play Almost all of it, because cinema, cinema will almost, almost exclusively ditch a lot of dialogue. Because again, on stage, it's people talking. Cinema is a visual language. You don't need all that talking when you can express it with a close-up or express it with a room full of silence. You can do so much more with music and, and, and presence than you can with just people saying, and this is how I feel, turn to the camera, this is how I feel. It's like, <laughs> fuck, man, have a bit of nuance. Olivier would do like a straight adaptation and he does some really fucking good ones. His his Hamlet and his Richard III are, are brilliant. His Othello is... Uh, problematic. Problematic. <laughs> um, but, you know, the past. Um, the next big one, which, again, huge, huge critical acclaim, I think 100% Rotten Tomatoes, if I remember correctly, is Blimey. the 1989 one by Kenneth Branagh. That's the one where people end up watching in school and shit because it was, for lack of a better word, realistic. It was very dirty and grubby and bloody and violent and Agincourt had never been seen in such a way. Because so the Olivier version, it was pristine armour. It was very, you know, 
on St. Crispin's Day speech, for example, it is very much like just Olivier on a sort of mount, as it were, and it's just slowly pushing into him the whole time. Mm. It's like, this is fine. Whereas Bran is running around the field covered in mud and blood and just rallying people, and you're like, fuck yeah, let's go. And it's <laughs> it's good. Also, Bran's version, half it's in French, because obviously the French side's in shown, and that's really cleverly done. And if there so are two great. people I think of when it comes to Shakespeare adaptations, it's Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> those two, those two really keep it alive as far as cinema in, in, in is their respective eras. I think those two are two of the most mm-hmm. influential people in terms most, of adapting definitely. his work. Recently, uh, as a third comparison, is last year's The King. With oh, Timothée Chalamet. Chalamet, yes. Yeah, and Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Or um, Robert Pattinson. Um, Pattinson. I actually really like this version because it is both a faithful adaptation and it's going for the realism and it's trying to do a language. It's trying to do a lot of stuff. Cuts away all kinds of things, amalgamates people. Try and do um, a revisionist, realistic sort of portrayal of the biographical history of it. Endure some of the language. Has the F word in it. Well... <laughs> So yes, it's 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 actually it's, not it's, bad. It's Shakespeare, but it's got swears in it. Yeah, watch out! But it's not it's not Shakespeare with guns because that's <laughs> actually I'm 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 not even being facetious. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet is is brilliant. Don't I know. fucking love the Every, yeah. Everyone should love that. I love Fuck Baz you. Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> yep, but that shows the evolution of the time period. It's not only and this is kind of a key point about Shakespeare here in terms of the works. What we've described is a growing trend in cinema. So in the 40s, you'd have this very clean, pristine, this is the sort of felt, ha-ha-ha, swashbuckling way that you'd show Robin Hood, you know, with um, Errol Flynn and some shit. Then you get to the state of the 80s, which is like, no, we want to go for a bit more realism, a bit more uh, grime and dirt. And it wouldn't have actually been that way, it would have been in this way instead. And then finally, you get to the hyper-realism of the 2000, well, 2010s, 2020s, which is like, yeah, it was like that but it was worse it was tits and death and puking and blood and fuck it was fucking swearing and shit and it's like and people died nasty ways and he's like yeah 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 um <laughs> i i don't know what the trend would be next but the point is the play remains the same it's still the same thing i mean admittedly the only th- uh, um, the, the Kings especially is adapted from Henry the Fourth Part One Two and Henry the Fifth but that's not by the by the point is the works have evolved with cinema and the trends of cinema. So much so that, as Jack pointed out earlier, there are so many examples of, of adaptations you wouldn't realise are adaptations. And I think, it, obviously, obviously for Henry V, tricky one, because technically speaking, it's a biopic about an English king from the 15, 1400s, I should say, 15th century. And as such, it's almost always exclusively set in that time period. But then you get something else, like, say, for example, The Taming of the Shrew or Twelfth Night or something. Actually, let's take Twelfth Night for a second. With Amanda Bynes's She's the Man, I think it is. Um, <laughs> yep. on, with Channing Tatum. The story is still there. The, it's, it's nonsense and silly, but it's still present. And you can still tell it's Shakespeare. I want to say, you know, and we're getting into... Uh, a, a longer conversation, which which we, we've we've got on our little bullet bullet point list of, of stuff to talk about about the level of adaptation, like how close you do in terms of changing setting, in terms of changing language and stuff. But even something like um, <clears throat> Henry the Fourth slash Henry the Fifth, um, you can have a extremely serious adaptation like 
you know, your Branners or like, you know, the yeah. King or something, which is like, yeah, we're going to show this in all its grit and, you know, glory. And then you can have an excre- uh, a super loose adaptation like My Own Private Hide Idaho, oh, which is very yes. loosely based on, uh, I think, Henry IV parts of Part- one do yeah, yeah aforementioned river phoenix and keanu yeah. reeves and yeah, yep yeah yeah and yet you could show that to someone and they would have absolutely no idea that they were watching something that was like albeit loosely based on shakespeare i didn't yeah. know that until yesterday <laughs> <laughs> i've seen that movie <laughs> the t- tv does it quite well as well uh, which is strange because it a play runs for a limited period of time in terms of like uh, runtime it transports itself better to film than it does TV. But TV in the sort of what TV is now, you can bleed these things out longer. So for example, uh, House of Cards, the now much maligned House of Cards, um, is very Macbeth, sort of Richard III. Um, And then you've got Sons of Anarchy, which is Hamlet. And you've got Empire, which is King Lear. And it's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, what? Because you and unless someone tells you, you might not be aware. And like, oh yeah, here's the beats of the thing. Like, oh fuck, yeah, it is. And even the problem with that, you've got, like I said before, how much Shakespeare has permeated culture without us realizing. Some of the people who make these things aren't intentionally adapting Shakespeare's work, but. Mm the narrative structure and his way of storytelling and particular character archetypes are so ingrained in Western storytelling and especially British storytelling throughout yeah. the years in cinema and, and on stage and even in novels and comics and everything like that. Mm. It's so, without even thinking, you know of certain archetypes and certain like, like the, the long lost lovers kind of like, oh, they're battling, you know, the, the two families don't want them to mm, yeah. be together and all that kind of stuff. That has been used so many times in so many different ways. And obviously, Romeo and Juliet is the example of that. But there are so many examples I'm sure people have made without realizing. I mean, like, oh, shit, I've just made Romeo and Juliet or, or done that kind of thing where they not even realized. And one that really blew my mind that I hadn't really thought about, along with um, my own private Idaho, is Forbidden Planet is basically the Tempest. Yes. yes. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're right. Shit. I mean, apart from the ending, which is a bit different, but yes, yes. I was like, I had never really thought about that. And then thinking about how Forbidden Planet has then influenced the last fifty, oh, more than fifty years, sixty years of science fiction cinema and storytelling mm. since then. And then you just get this fucking pyramid scheme of storytelling and influence of how <laughs> people who don't know that Forbidden Planet is the Tempest are inspired by Forbidden Planet, and then redo that, and then blah 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 blah, and then. And, it's the moment in Wayne's World and they tell their friends and their friends and their <laughs> friends and you get these things that aren't originally influenced by The Tempest but it's it's kind of a, oh I'm doing Forbidden Planet but it's a western ha ha <coughs> like you just did The Tempest motherfucker but you didn't realise we got you <laughs> Bill Shakespeare's at it again <laughs> Bill you dog <laughs> you sly dog Bill which sounds very western sly dog Bill there you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> As a comparison, there's a very interesting parallel, shall we say, which is one of Jack's classics, Jack's classic phrases, which is... Fuck off. (laughs) Fuck off. Uh, No, no, it's... (laughs) No. um, No, it's The uh, the Simpsons. And the idea... Obviously, I'm not talking about The Simpsons doing Shakespeare, which they have also referenced a lot. They've done all the fucking time. (laughs) Yes. They've literally done Hamlet. 
like literally done it with with Bartenheimer and yeah, else. exactly because that's yeah. that's the Simpsons for you. It's it's it's, it's the culture, pop culture pot, as it well. But the point is that in the same way that Shakespeare absorbed and adapted a lot of popular tales of the time and just made it into a key reference point, even if it's something you weren't inadvertently making. Sorry, even if it's something you weren't actively making a actual adaptation of Shakespeare. Uh, or his work specifically, someone will say, you do realise that's Coriolanus. And you're like, what the fuck is Coriolanus? It's <laughs> like, so, oh, it's this play about this guy. Well, I d- I'm just trying to make a story about, like, you know, a, 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 a fucking child soldier warlord in a certain country in, in, in Central Africa. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I know what you're doing. It's very cool. It's a good story. But these beats here, those three beats, they're not much, but enough of them, that's Coriolanus. And it's the same with The Simpsons. It's like, you'd realise it's a Simpsons episode. It's like, yeah, but that's not a Simpsons thing. It's referencing something else. It's like, yeah, but I know it from The Simpsons. <laughs> Therefore, you copied The Simpsons. Yeah. When, I'm, when I'm writing stories as a, as a writer <laughs> now, I will be influenced by The Simpsons, which turns out is actually a reference to a thing that I don't get because I saw that episode <laughs> when I was 12 mm-hmm. or whatever. And to this day, I haven't revisited it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a reference to that thing. So me as a writer being influenced by stuff that is overtly influenced by other stuff, but I'm not getting the reference. Like, I don't know. Mm. I've written a few sci-fi stories in my time, somewhat influenced by I saw Forbidden Planet when I was a kid. (laughs) And, you know, having like Robbie the Robot and stuff and those kind of iconic designs and the big kind of 50s sci-fi vibe Mm -hmm. and being like, huh, yeah, I was influenced by Shakespeare before I even was aware of the Tempest even existing because the Tempest was not a thing we covered in school. We kind mm-hmm. of did the obvious ones, the <clears throat> Romeo and Juliet's and the whatnots and, and King Lear, I think we did a little bit of, but yeah, he has a, the sly dog bill just has a way of sneaking in and just, <laughs> just getting in whether you like it or not. And whether you're even aware of that particular play, because also there's a shit ton of Shakespeare stuff. Oh, there, we, we know the all the big ones and the famous it, ones. There's a bunch of other stuff. There's fucking mm. dozens of them that you've probably never heard of and never read and probably haven't seen an adaptation of, but secretly you probably have because some writer somewhere did an adaptation of it consciously mm-hmm. or subconsciously and it has then permeated the culture in that way and it's just like... It, it's inescapable. When I was doing research for this, I'm like, for fuck's sake, this is unbelievable. <laughs> like, I couldn't... Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite get my head around how much of how much of cinema and like I said, comics and stuff like that has been influenced by him directly or indirectly. It, and then it we're is talking a bit about crazy murder adaptations murder and stuff as well. Kind of thing where you're like, oh my god, and you pull back and think, it's, <laughs> it's all Shakespeare. It's it's Charlie and the way yes. Sunny. Just like, yeah. Exactly. No exactly. I, I know what you mean about how it can inadvertently slip in there because at like like you, you can find yourself there, we've all been there <laughs> just a thumb you can find yourself just innocently writing a, a sequel to smoking aces and then it turns out that apparently it's a bit like love actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wait is love is love actually based on a shakespeare thing technically there are elements within the short stories that are shakespearean see <clears throat> see <laughs> But that's such a broad phrase. We say Shakespearean as if it means... Again, if we take the the, the Romeo and Juliet, I think that's one of most... Hamlet is his most famous work, but Romeo and Juliet is one people actually know. Hamlet's the one they quote when they say to be or not to be. That's the most famous quote. But Romeo and Juliet is the one they actually can tell you the story of. And a lot of people know the quotes. 
but they know like two or three words of the quote and then yeah. that's a soliloquy that goes on for seven and a half minutes <laughs> you're like for fuck what the, the, yeah. the slings and arrows and blah 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 and it carries on like going on and on and on and people and I remember there was a moment when we were at school one of the like posh kids basically carried on after the teacher did the reference <clears throat> to be or not to be that is the question as a bit of a joke and then they, the other kid like carried it on and the teacher was like oh my god I'm so impressed and I was like that's because he's a fucking Tory that's why <laughs> this fucking this fucking tough kid is just like oh yes to suffer the slings and arrows <laughs> which is a very good segue to our next point you will language the privilege of language, because unlike a lot of cultures and a lot of languages, you get like old German and, and, and stuff like that is kind of like contemporary German. It just sounds a bit different, but it doesn't. Whereas English language is something so that's true. But I mean, it, it, the nature of it being written in the past, it still reads mostly like contemporary. So sort of. I, I know the, the wording and the format, and stuff, but, but the key thing is that it's not literally like the evolution of English language, where if you hear Chaucer, it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, oh, thunder, thunder on the ball. And it's like, what the fuck are you saying? Um, exactly it's like, that's not. English. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that. that's old English, fool. And it's like, oh. Whereas Shakespeare is written in such a phrase, I mean, obviously I'm a bit pentameter and all that sort of stuff, but more importantly, there's words, yes, he invented, but there's also words and phrasings we don't actually use. That's why most of the time, everything is fucking translated as if it's an entirely different language. Um, and that is, I believe, the biggest barrier. Now, obviously, as Jack has pointed out, if you come from a point of privilege where your family is already, you know, seven generations of a fucking heraldic shield above the fireplace, <laughs> sacrificing the poor in the basement kind of thing um, to maintain your, your position in society, then you're used to that kind of stuff. You grew up in it in the same way that our own fucking, not to get too political, our prime minister when he was uh, the foreign secretary just goes to... Which commentary it was? No, it was just bust out the classics. Yeah, he just he just busts out some Rudyard Kipling. It's like that's actually Fuck really off, insensitive. Boris. That's not was, a good thing to. Yeah, so, it was in Burma. I want to Burma, say. I think it was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like this is just a, it's just it's, it's just a play. I'm just I'm just remembering from my days. It's like yeah, but you didn't learn about. And this is the key point here. The the example that Jack gave is not about somebody who understands the meaning or the importance of it. It's someone who recites and learns the words. Yeah. It's and somebody who off and being exactly. a fucking teacher. It's somebody pet. who learns a solo from a single Iron Maiden song but has <laughs> never heard any Iron Maiden. No, you're talking and my language still doesn't, doesn't understand that it's like that's one like that's pretty good, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you, what the fuck are you talking about? It's like, do you know Run to the Hills? No, I don't. Well, the fucker, shut up then. It's just like, it's it's the nature of, you've taken such a strange, small break. I mean, there was actually a really, I'm sorry to digress and hijack this, but fuck it. There was an, um, a, a bit of performance there, so you can see it on YouTube, whereby the phrase, to be or not to be, that is the question. And they got so many actors on stage and it culminates with uh, Prince Charles and it was to say everyone who comes out puts the inflection on one word to be or not to be and they said to be or not to be that is the and you say that's where the and then obviously every time you change it changes the meaning and that's yeah. the nature of the English language if you change that inflection each single time so for example when Prince Charles would say to be or not to be that is the question <laughs> it's like yes 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 and that's the nature of you you can really deep dive that shit too much but the language 
is so oppressive. That's what I mentioned about Olivier. You don't necessarily need to understand what he's saying because his performance, he had a third account of the two brothers and it's like, oh fuck, he's angry. Um, and he's like, you know, there's there's this, it's, it's who sells it to you. Bran is another example. He makes it quite palatable. And then later we've just decided to kind of cobble it together to make it sound more approachable. And then turns it into, as we mentioned earlier, the MCU. That's how we got Thor. <laughs> That's how you got Thor, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think I think there's the... A thing there is also how we approach Shakespeare nowadays because mm. so much of our introduction to Shakespeare is at school. And that means sitting down with a book of the play and trying yeah. to read through it. And these, you know, we've talked about adaptation <clears throat> of going from the stage to cinema, which is are relatively smooth, albeit, you know, they have different strengths and different weaknesses. Sure. Putting the plays down as just written out things... So dry. Is, it, it, it robs them of all their context. It robs them... Because often you don't even have stage direct, directions on there because I, they want yeah. to they want to present it in the it's most pure purest... Form. It's yeah. purest... I'm, I'm going to throw this out there. Is there anything more painful than reading a play... That you don't really know, which Bob is why, wearing your, as we your talked ether. about in the season finale, the cursed child was such a terrible yes. fucking idea. Yes. Yes. It sold gangbusters because either people didn't really understand what it was, and fuck it, it's Harry Potter, it will sell no matter what. But good lord, that is a piece of shit to read. And I only yeah. read it briefly over Emma's shoulder a couple of times. I didn't even read the fucking thing, but. People go and see it and they're like, yeah. oh, mate, the the what they can do. And as you mentioned earlier, Matt, like what they can do with the particular things. And then as you said, Tim, earlier, like, oh, they only had a few locations, which makes it really boring to read. But the fact that they can transform the set mm. around mm. you and transform the stage and they do actual magic on set and on stage somehow and you don't fully understand how and they're flying about and there's no wires you don't know what the fuck's going on oh my god it's the spectacle reading that is diabolically boring <laughs> and as, as you said Tim like especially if there's no stage direction mm. because characters just appear out of nowhere imagine taking a novel and just cutting out everything that's not dialogue and it's just the dialogue mm. Your favorite novel would sound like a piece of shit, and, and the dialogue is is written in a highly stylized way that people <laughs> that don't too, talk yeah. in anymore. Yeah. That's occasionally poetry. Yeah, and, and then it, and then you get the opposite with things like one of my all time favorite books is The Road, and how Cormac McCarthy then like. And I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but like the way he mashes language and then like dialogue goes out of the window by the end of that book because you can't even tell who's speaking or whether it is dialogue or the inner monologue of, of the boy or the man or what the hell is going on. And that's kind of the point. Whereas I remember trying to read Shakespeare as a, what, a year 10, probably year eight, whatever it was. So 13, yeah. 14, however <laughs> the fuck old I was. I was wanting to listen to heavy metal and watch The <laughs> Simpsons. I didn't want to be sat here reading Shakespeare. And I just yeah. found it so dry and so... I, I All these words don't mean... None of these character names mean anything to me because, again, those character names are now kind of synonymous in, in so much culture and you see them kind of permeate mm. so mm. many different influences. They're often kind of anglicized and modernized in various different ways and things like that, but hearing like prospero or like or, or benedict without the t just feels weird <laughs> to me it still feels weird to me every time yeah. i want to put a t on there and 
you get those names that just like just don't feel like character names in the modern sense of yeah i i just found it unbearable to read just the plays as they are written and mm. i i could not get into it at all as a teenager and i haven't tried since i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and pretend like i've gone back in my <laughs> 20s and be like yeah cool i'm gonna go and check it out again because I, it's designed to be performed there's, there's yeah, yeah. I, I think this is the thing it's our introduction to it is so often you, you're sitting down, you're reading it, and the, the you know your teacher probably says like, well, these are designed to be performed, so everyone's going to take a part, and we're going to go around, and you know, so and so is going to read Romeo, and so and so is going to read Juliet, and you've got teenagers who don't understand the language that they're saying, and like this is not bringing the play to life for anyone, no. and I and think you know it's what? why it's why film is so valuable, and why having adaptations that both main that keep the language and that cast it aside and just use the plot mm, or maybe, you know, mm. pick in a little bit of the language. They're both really valuable just purely from like an educational point of view. If we're, if we're going to continue to hold up Shakespeare as something that's worth studying, which I think he is probably not to the degree the, to which yeah. the fact that studying Shakespeare means we exclude other things, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah. Back to colonialism again. Yeah. <laughs> and elitism. But... To be able to, and, and you know, obviously seeing mm. stuff live is great, but theatre is exclusive. You know, it's not, you know, you have to be able to afford to, you have to have a theatre near you that's showing the right thing that you can then go to, you know, and and mm. film, you can, you know, you can get a DVD, you can stream it, whatever. It's much more accessible. Mm. And to have talented performers who understand the language that they're saying perform stuff brings that language to life and makes it so much more comprehensible than it would be to just sit there and read it and try and pass out like okay it's, i know there's a dick joke in here somewhere but i don't know what it is <laughs> whereas if you've got someone performing it and they they know where the dick joke hits suddenly you don't need to you can it brings you a new level of understanding to the language even if it it, it, it transcends that kind of understanding um, absolutely and, yeah. And uh, I think, you know, that's that's the value of, of having Shakespeare filmed is that you can bring those stories and that language to more people and they can understand it in a way they never could just from sitting down and reading the plays. Yeah. And to tie it back into what Matt said earlier, reading it, you don't have the intonation of the intended sentence. Mm. So to be or not to be or to be or not to be. Is it to be or not to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's three completely different meanings. Uh, I don't different readings, yeah. I'm a fucking 13-year-old. I don't know how it's supposed to be. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think, and we don't know, even if I'm not a 13-year-old, fucking scholars and people who've studied this shit, yeah. you don't know what a thing written for 500 years ago, yeah. the intention behind it, you you simply can't because it's not within... You know, it, it, you get that Chinese whispers thing through history where things change and, and merge and adapt and, you know, uh, or go through various different forms of, of whether being written down or communicated <coughs> verbally or whatever it is. And seeing it written down, you're like, is it to be or not to be? I don't know. And that would change your interpretation of that. I know it's a it's the obvious example, but that could then in, change yeah, the interpretation of an entire story, an entire character. And and that is the the joy of seeing multiple adaptations as well is that yes. you know death of the absolutely, author and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff you to know, spin you that can, into a positive way yeah absolutely yeah you can take the same play and and perform it 
in different, you know, with different actors, with different direction, mm. with different, you know, intonation <laughs> and and all those kind of things. And a different, mm. you know, you know, having the right song playing under a certain bit of Shakespeare may completely transform how you interpret exactly the same dialogue. You know, and so that that is there's a there's a reason why, you know, I think these plays have stood up to those interpretations over and over again because there is a richness to the language that means that yeah you can you can film this a lot of different ways and you can find nuance in it that you know i'm sure for you know if if you are an actor who feels comfortable with shakespeare or a director who feels comfortable with it there's mm. so much fodder there to interpret as a director and you guys can attest this shit as, as guys who I've directed. Um, getting back to the whole like sitting in classrooms, because Tim and I went to the same high school and I know exactly the kind of rooms oh, you yeah. sit in now where you're sitting there <laughs> and thinking, okay, everybody, and you're like, I haven't read this before in my life. Um, and you're like, okay, yeah. and also more important, it's like, okay, Matt, you're going to be running this role and then uh, oh, this well, role's played by the girl who's like the hot gun class, like, fuck, 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 They pass it around and Juliet's yeah. your crush and you don't know what to do and you get yeah. a boner and it's all embarrassing. <laughs> We've all been there, Matt. We've all been there. But, as you guys can attest, you can be the best actor in the world. If I you're am, cold you. reading off a fucking page, it's not going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to sound like an arsehole and you're going to butcher it. To be... That oh, it's still going. Is All right. The question. Where's and also because it's obviously um, written in certain form. You're like, yeah. Wait. Wh- oh yeah. Where's the full stop? Understand iambic pentameter, don't they? Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing uh, Anthony and Cleopatra with Ray Fiennes and uh, Sophia Okonedo, and j- j- just you can any act can bring something entirely different to a line. I mean, again, that's a, that's a really good adaptation that the, the National Theatre did. Uh, it, it shows in cinema sometimes, and if you have a chance you should check it out it's actually really fucking cool but it's when you got Ray Fine saying I don't think a specific line but it's his inflection behind it <laughs> and it's like oh hang on he's, he's bringing it as this but in the same way that if you read the lines I create life <laughs> <laughs> which ultimately sounds um, so innocuous um, and it's just on the page I create life and I destroy it that's that's a normal thing. Mm. But only certain actors will choose to say, I create life! <laughs> and I destroy it. <laughs> Some people might read Shakespeare the in the exact same fucking way and it might work, it might not. And unless you have a director behind the camera saying, uh, yeah, let's quantify this. Let's make this very specifically not that. I, I want to I wanna take that as a pivot point, actually, because uh, we, we were going to discuss, and we'll have to keep this brief because we could this could literally be a whole separate episode of Sequelizers. Sure. But Shakespeare adaptations we'd like to see. Fuck oh, yeah. me, I'd love to see a Wachowski's take on, like, The, the Tempest or oh, something. Oh, here we go. Now we're talking. So uh, Tim is entirely right. We're going to briefly scratch the surface, but we are definitely coming back to this because I, it is definitely something we can go on to for quite, for quite a period of time. I've seen some really good... We'll come back to our own picks in a minute as well. I always like the idea of underperformed plays. I've seen enough fucking Henry V's, enough Ham... My God, enough Hamlet's. Enough Romeo and Juliet's. I'd like to see some things, again, like more, more Titus Andronicus, more Coriolanus, more, more things like that. But a specific example. I have seen one or two A Midsummer Night's Dreams. Uh, sorry, A Midsummer Night's Dream, singular, the play, mm. but obviously multiple versions <laughs> of it. Um, but 
I've never seen it done well, in my opinion. It's so fantastical. And it ensures a sense of, of fantasy. And I think that's always absolutely butchered by movies. Um, I think the one I remember relatively distinctly is the 1999 version. Is that the Michelle Pfeiffer and yes, Everett? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, that's Kevin Klein, Rupert Everett and Stanley Tucci and shit. That was the one that came out, you know, I remember, I remember going to the uh, Odin at Angler Square in Norwich to see The Matrix. There's a big old poster for that and thought, that doesn't look right. That's not donkey. You know? Bottom, obviously, Kevin Klein is a great casting for Bottom. That's That's really good. But it's like, yeah, I bet he better have a big fucking donkey's head and it better be good. Because I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I was like, Shakespeare sounds boring. And mum said to me that there was one with a donkey's head. And I thought, brilliant. <laughs> to this day, I'm not entirely sure I understand A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, <laughs> but um, I feel it's so over the top and so stupid and so ridiculous. And it's got fairies and all kinds of shit. I was like, guys, come on, you need to do something cool with this. And I think I, we bring him out too much. We trot this man out too much. <laughs> but Guillermo del Toro doing a Midsummer Night's Dream would be absolutely stunning. Um, in, I should point out, Spanish. Oh, um, okay. Speaking of language, I think that would be fantastic. There was a version that was done uh, in 2017 that I have yes. not seen, but I'd, I'd be really intrigued to see. It's got a really interesting cast. Mm. Um, it's got Rachel Lee Cook as Hermia, uh, Fran Kranz, who people know from uh, a lot of uh, Joss Whedon stuff, uh, mm -hmm. as Bottom. Uh, Hamish Linklater, who's an actor I really like, as Lysander. Uh, Saul Williams as Oberon. Um, mm -hmm. I Like I say, I have not seen it. I'd be really intrigued because, again, it's it's one of those plays where I have bounced off it every time I see it, and yet there's something about it where I'm like, I feel like I would enjoy yeah. it if I saw the right version of it. Same, same thing, same thing. It's more more to me about the stuff that I didn't realise was even an adaptation in the first place. Ah. I almost feel like everything I could possibly think of has already been done. <laughs> and the fact that, like, like take one of my favourite comic book series of all time, The Sandman. Mm. You have an entire issue that's basically Midsummer Night's Dream retold through the dreams. Yeah. And then you also have the Tempest issue where you literally follow Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like this weird thing where it's like, that's kind of hard to avoid when you realize he's doing that and you literally have Shakespeare being, you know, personified mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But it, it's something like that. I was like, oh, I'd love to see like a, like a Neil Gaiman version. I was like, yeah, he's kind of already done Ooh. it. Oh, I'd love to see like a sci-fi version of The Tempest. Oh, you mean Forbidden Planet? Yeah, great. Like, <laughs> it, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like anything I say would, would already have been done without yeah. wheeling out my usual, oh, I want to see fucking yeah. Carl Urban or Denis Villeneuve do a thing, or Alex Garland do a cerebral sci-fi version of insert name of Shakespeare thing here. <laughs> sure, it's like, sure. Yeah. That's fair. Know. That's fair. Because the influence is far reaching, so that makes sense. Mm. I I um I am astonished when there was the trend, uh the kind of mid to late nineties trend mm -hmm. of doing teen kind of Shakespeare adaptations, which we will yes. come back to in a in a moment. Oh yes. I remain astonished that we did not get a much ado about nothing. Um yeah. which is it like, lends itself so easily to it. It does, yeah. Um I there I <clears throat> I looked this up uh, um earlier today and there is one version of that's called like Messina High, but it is extremely oh, low budget 
Um, and the only <clears throat> uh, the only actor that I recognised from it is someone who started out in porn, uh, which does not speak highly of it. Is that um, what you recognise them from, Tim? <laughs> no comment, Your Honour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't speak highly of my taste Tim in adult films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that mm. I cannot understand why there has not been a more successful like version of that. Um, sure. So the, the much about nothing version and. We'll come back to this in a moment. A little hint for you. The one I always think of is the um, Shakespeare retold BBC thing from like uh, yes. the mid two thousands with Damien Lewis and sure, Billy Piper sure, sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I remember them doing a bunch of those. Like, here's a modernised version of blah blah blah. Baz Luhrmann. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the all the. the they did the, it with uh, the Canterbury Tales as well. I remember they did. That time. Yeah. They probably yeah. did. Yeah. I'll tell you another one that I really would like to see adapted to film, and one I specifically saw on the stage and thought this specific adaptation needs to be brought to the cinema. Um, because that's, that's how my mind tends to work with these things. You know, I'm cinematically, filmically minded. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. Gregory Doran, or Doran, I think it is. Anyway, in 2012, he did an adaptation of Julius Caesar with this amazing, amazing fucking cast, but an all-black version about a African warlord, effectively. Uh, or obviously King Royal being overthrown by things, and then that story of Julius Caesar. And it was just so good. It's 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 great to see on stage. I remember in, that being advertised at mm. the time and, and being gutted that I missed seeing it because it did look amazing. Yeah. It's always the frustration of theatre. You can never... You, if you get there, you get there, and it's expensive and difficult, but if you can't, you don't. You seemingly never see it again unless... It's shown in the cinema years later, yeah. and again, that's very difficult or, or to guarantee. It's successful enough that it gets like it's just constant. It like it never leaves production, kind of thing. Precisely, exactly. Um, but that version specifically, I can't think of who I would want to actually direct that. But I think that would be very, very interesting to see on film. I'll tell you who should direct that version, or who would Go make ahead. a fucking amazing version. Steve McQueen. Yeah, I was of course. Say, of course. I, was th- I was thinking Ryan Coogler or Steve McQueen, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. I, I actually completely agree yeah. with that. I think I think it's a very to very reference back to the Zulu Dawn. Episode. Yes. yes. <laughs> Speaking of turning something terrible and colonial into something <laughs> positive for the black community. <laughs> yeah, the, the the two others that I thought of in terms of adaptations I'd like to see. One of them is a play that I I basically don't really know that well, but I I was kind of having a nose and I was like, okay, let's let's look at some of the less obvious ones because like you say, like you know, there's there's so many Romeo and Juliets out there. I'm sure that there are people who could do like really interesting things, especially when in terms of, of course. giving you know more, more marginalized people kind of bigger roles, um, especially behind the camera in terms of adaptating, adaptating, adapting hmm. uh, these sort of things. I you know there's there it's the lesser plays that I have less familiar familiarity with that I'd like to see something interesting done with and and sure. you know, get a, a grip to. And I was looking at A Winter's Tale. Oh shit, yeah. Just reading through the synopsis, I was like, man, it's it's not there's not a huge amount of the fantastical in it like there is in say a Tempest or a Midsummer Night's Dream, but like it reads like a fairy tale. Um and in much the same way as like, you know, it would be great to say see a Del Toro version of of Midsummer Night's Dream. It would be great to see mm-hmm. someone like him with a really <laughs> strong sense <clears throat> of the fantastic. Uh, yeah. to do to do that because I think there could be a really interesting uh, version of that. The other one that I immediately thought of, um, and it's one that has had a recent adaptation which I really liked, which was Coriolanus. 
Um, yeah, I like which had too. a 2011 adaptation. Oh, the, the Ray Fiennes one. The Ray Fiennes, which yeah. is extremely good. I like that a lot. And the way that I would improve it is that I would make it set slightly in the future and I would give Coriolanus a mech. Ooh, <laughs> Okay, first of all, Coriolanus, I love a pl- as a play. Coriolanus, I really enjoy the Ray Fiennes version, um, except when he's saying, boy, it's basically Voldemort. Um, and throwing in mechs. Fucking pr- protecting that grain, yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just, all about yeah. that shit. You, 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 you. You know, you make the grain is actually like super energon. Super energon. It's a Transformers crystals. thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want, yeah. Cy- I want cyberpunk Coriolanus, or perhaps yeah, not cyberpunk, but like anime, future. post-apocalyptic yeah. mecha anime Coriolanus. I'm all, I'm all for that shit. I, I would similarly, I th- again, because you can do so much. And, and and with Romeo and Juliet, for example, there is a interesting thing that ran in the 1800s on the stage, which one night you could see the tragedy version because it's a tragedy. And another night you could see the comedy version where it doesn't end up as a tragedy because it's literally, there is an old adage that Romeo and Juliet is one minor change away from being a comedy because it's all so silly. It's that there's, there's the saying that like, Shakespeare's comedies and tragedies are almost exactly the same, except that tragedies end with funerals and comedies end with marriages. Yeah, that's entirely. <laughs> entirely. And, and and actually, A Winter's Tale, which I was looking at, is one of his. It's it's apparently labelled one of his problematic plays um, because the first like three fifths of it are just like this dark psychological drama, and then it just <laughs> ends with like happiness and a like a, you know everyone getting married. A new catastrophe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's that's <laughs> major adaptations. To do same with like Romeo and Juliet, for example, there's to subvert it, to tell it from a female perspective, to tell it from a male perspective. Gender switching, to so make it a, a, a gay couple, that kind of thing, a trans couple, Turn anything. Into an anime, like they did. Literally. Sorry. There, there's a there's a Romeo and Juliet anime. Of course, is. there fucking is. And the dub, a zombie it, version. The dub is entirely an iambic pentameter. It's pretty impressive. Well, that's actually well, that it's, is it's stupid. Though. I've not watched. I've only seen clips, no. but yeah. Um, of course, Romeo X Juliet, <laughs> <laughs> like Hunter X Hunter. But at the same time, you can do subversive versions of those because people are familiar already with the plot. Whereas a Winter's Tale, for example, you kind of want a, just a straight version, just because people mm. might not be familiar at all, and that's very helpful. But at the end of the day while we could very easily go on about this for quite some time, a lot of these interseason discussions, we have to genuinely police ourselves because it's fun and cool to talk about this stuff. And we know you guys be the same thing because like a poltergeist, you're desperately shouting things at nothing <laughs> because you're like, Hey, I have an opinion. It's like, yes, that's what the discord is for. Um, but um, we have our own choices of, un- unlike other things we've done uh, for interseason stuff where we're like, well, these are problematic picks. These are picks we weren't happy with. These are things, yada, yada, yada. These, I believe, are our adaptations that we actually really, really hold up and enjoy and think are very, very strong. I think it's, it's fair to say. So these are all going to be very praise happy, as it were. Um, and I was only allowed to pick one. I am very <laughs> angry. Good. We finally kept you restrained. Had real difficulty doing this we had to keep shaking the no-no can at, at matt yeah spraying him with a water bottle yeah it's like well, i could have a, maybe maybe just two minor mentions please <laughs> <laughs> just spent um, over an hour talking about all the other stuff so no i know, I know, I know. <laughs> no and i i teased yours 
earlier, Matt, and mm. not to dive straight into the deep end here with a, a monologue from you for the next 45 minutes, but <laughs> this is the most Matt pick ever. <laughs> Please introduce it to the ladies and gentlemen course, if they don't already know. So, uh, strange enough, Tim mentions Coriolanus. I was close to picking that. I really like a Merchant of Venice with Al Pacino. There's some great versions. But much as Jack said, it's the stuff you don't necessarily realize is Shakespeare until you go, oh, fuck, this sounds really familiar. And one of my absolute favorite plays of Shakespeare's is Macbeth. I really like the Fassbender version. Mm. The, the Which turned Jim into Assassin's Creed in a way. Pretty much. <laughs> With Castle and Fassbender and Cotillard then doing <laughs> Assassin's Creed. Pretty much transposed exactly, yeah. But... Matt's gonna man, I'm afraid. Akira Kurosawa. Everybody drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking told you, folks. I told you. See you in 10 minutes, folks. He He's adapted a few Shakespearean plays or influenced heavily by Shakespearean plays. One that's almost beat for fucking beat, though, is Throne of Blood. And it's one of my absolute favorite films. I fucking adore Throne of Blood. It takes all the the mist and fog and betrayal and treachery of the scottish highlands or lowlands <laughs> i can't remember actually the scotlands the Sc of all the scotlands <laughs> and and just puts it straight in feudal japan and what's very interesting to me about that is is kurosawa uh, was interviewed and said that shakespeare wasn't performed on stage like no theater or something like that uh no theater being a, a traditional japanese style of, of theater and kabuki and that kind of stuff but he read the play. I mean, you talk about being dry, for example. He just read the translation and therefore... Imagine anything dry, I was like, God, I can't imagine anything worse. Oh, reading <laughs> the Japanese translation of it. <laughs> even more tiresome. Yeah. So it's interesting what is translated and what isn't in terms of... We talk about the inflection in certain places of and certain the fact that he made up words. How do you translate made up words? You have them yeah, be around long enough that they become accepted parts of the language and get translations yeah. anyway. <laughs> It takes all the all the various bits and pieces. It still makes it very Japanese. So uh, there aren't three witches in the woods. There's one, and she has a little spindle, and she's very creepy. Um, and the woods still move. Everything is as it is. Uh, it, it's beautifully fucking filmed because, of course, it is. Um, there's a bit where Tashiro Mifune nearly dies because um, Kurosawa's like, okay, uh, we want him to be scared. How do I do this? Oh, I know. When he's being attacked by arrows, we'll just get this really trained archer to just fire fucking Actually, arrows yeah, yeah. at him. It's it's the thing of the poster or the box art. The first thing you'll see if you type in Throne of Blood is Mufune's face going, <laughs> he is not acting. <laughs> anyway, he's an all-time so all great. Mufune's amazing. Damn right he is. Um, so Throne of Blood is Macbeth through and through and it's it's very well done it holds up just as well the language obviously being Japanese and the, the ghosts appear at the end of the table and things like that it's brilliant it's a fantastic fantastic application and as I say the fact that it is free of cultural influences of how other people might have interpreted it through other stage performances and where they feel the most important inflection of the performance or the most important scenes or whatever is, is, isn't present as such so you have the core elements I think that's what I think about. I think that should be fair amount about a lot of our adaptation choices. The core elements being adapted for the audience of a time. And that's the key thing about the Shakespeare adaptation, I think, for me, is it needs to be something that you... If I said to you, hey, I'm going to show you Macbeth, you're like, oh, fucking Shakespeare, bloody hell. 
how long is it? (laughs) And like, will I understand any of it? It's like, don't worry. It'll be David Tennant staring at you dead in the face for 10 hours. And you're like, oh, well, I'm sure it'll be riveting. and I'm sure I'll appreciate it. (laughs) Is his shirt off? No. (laughs) No. He's in a black shirt and he's doing a very Scottish accent because he's Scottish and it's a Scottish play. You fuck. (laughs) But the... the, uh, Yeah, the Scottish players, it's known in Britain and the theatre industry because at the end of the day, Macbeth is considerably cursed, apparently. Anyway, so Throne of Blood, it was a very difficult decision for me to come to because I didn't I, I didn't initially want to just do the Matt thing and think, right, is he going to pick fucking um, Ran or is he picking Throne of Blood? Or maybe, maybe something that's even slightly inspired by that. Like, I mean, you no. could go for the Badsley Well as well, which is the the Hamlet Badsley one that he did. Exactly. Which is the, the I haven't seen Ran, but I've seen Throne of Blood and the Badsley Well, and they're both really good. They're and the Badsley Well is a weird one because it's from the '60s, so it's slightly later. It's modern at the time. Yeah, so it's contemporary to the '60s yeah. Japanese salary men stuff. And it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? And of course, when I saw it, as I mentioned, I had no idea this is fucking Hamlet. So like put that and the Lion King side by side, I'll be like, I don't fucking know. I have no idea. But the character I'm, I'm a teenager. I have no idea what the fuck's going on. But thankfully, my dad really likes Kurosawa and lots of samurai films. So I kind of grew up on that as well. Mm. The westerns and the and, and that kind of stuff, and yeah. then the samurai films as well. And talking of like adaptations, would like to see is like take me on Beth and just put it in like feudal Japan. Fuck yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, yep. that's the kind of adaptation. Oh, it's been done. It's been done <laughs> 60 years ago. Yep. Brilliant. Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> well, in, in a weird way, people, uh, this w- was when like the, the, like the Killmonger scenes, for example, in Black Panther, people were saying, this is very Shakespeare. This is very Hamlet. Because again, it, elements of, and as we mentioned earlier about Kenneth Branagh, t- uh, I remember I was at um, Kapow in London in like 20, whatever the hell it was, 2010 just before Thor came out and uh, Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston were there and it was a very small crowd. Nobody appreciated who these two men were. It wasn't that, oh my God, that's Chris Hemsworth and Tom mm. Hiddleston at the time because people didn't know. It was just, but, that's a big man. That's a big man and that's a boy. Um, <laughs> a pretty boy. A, a, a big man and a greasy pretty boy. <laughs> I was like, they were talking about Are you how... you describing the sequelizers right now? <laughs> um... And it was interesting because they were talking about how Hiddleston had real problems adapting to the work. He said, I, don't, I, can't, I can't do this. And he said, yes. And Branagh said, yes, you can. Of course you can. It's Shakespeare. It's two brothers vying for a king's affection. And he goes, oh. And it all fits into place. Just, mm. you know, any good director, just tell them what they know to get them into the headspace to do the performance they need to do. Obviously, let's face it, from Thor 1 to Avengers Endgame, shit changes. Um, but... Same with Shakespeare. But at the same time, I think, just to take it back to Throne of Blood for a second, as I said, Throne of Blood is, is a testament to the the adaptable. And I think this maybe this is the trick. I'm going to say something and completely dismiss it. I'm going to say this is a testament to how Shakespeare can be adapted to anything and it's fantastic and it's such a, um, a, a noble work that can be absorbed by all cultures and certain things. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. So can all fiction, motherfucker. <laughs> it's just that, Shakespeare's really good branding and very marketable. So, if, as I say, like if you say, "Come watch Shakespeare with me," eh, I'm not sure. I don't want to see Macbeth. 
But if, as Jack said, oh, I'd like to see a samurai version of that, fuck yeah, that's cool. And what's that? There are ghosts and shit and a weird, creepy witch in the woods who speaks with a voice like this. Brilliant, on board. And then the walk, the, I remember the walking trees with the like Walking the trees, the forest and stuff. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was really, it's really well done in that film. Um, it really is. I don't, I don't know how they did it in the 50s, that shot, but it's, it's great. Cool. He probably just moved some fucking trees. <laughs> <laughs> just dug up an entire forest. He could, you couldn't in. see the rain, so he put ink in the water and poisoned the whole fucking village. It's like waterfall. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't see the water. Make it yeah. black. Exactly. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it... I, I think it was effectively model work, but it was like, you know, literally just moving fucking trees. Um, <laughs> and this is why it was my pick, rather than saying, like, as I said, like The Merchant of Venice with, with Al Pacino or, that, or other ones like Richard III with Ian McKellen. This one, I can't, I can't talk about it. All I have to say is, it's the best thing. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's the best version of Macbeth. I love it. Go watch it. Bye-bye. See you next week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully for a bit more um, eloquence, we'll go a little bit further forward in time by about 50 years. Uh, to Tim, Timothy Matum. Hello. What are you bringing us? Well, I mentioned earlier the spate of Shakespeare adaptations into teen films, kind yeah. of probably triggered by uh, your boy Baz Luhrmann. Most definitely. Which uh, I... I as we mentioned earlier, I love his version of uh, Romeo and Juliet. The fact that it uses the original language and just the mm. the, the amazing stylization of it is great. Uh, mm. But the one I actually want to talk about is a much looser adaptation, and that is Ten Things I Hate About You, uh, yeah. which is a loose adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew uh, and is about as platonically perfect <laughs> teen film as you could get. <laughs> yeah. It is... Like the cast is absolutely astonishing. You have you have Heath Ledger, um, sadly sadly lost to us. Basically, kind of in his breakout role. Like yeah, he, effectively he had done it's a, a thing few that other turns things. him into like a teen heartthrob sex symbol kind of guy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and then and then he he kind of did that, and then he had um, he did he did kind of teen heartthrobby type roles for a little while. Yep, uh, and then had Brokeback Mountain and people were like, oh no, fuck, this guy can act. He can act. He he is acting in this and his acting is to be just the most charming person ever. Um, Cool, sexy, charming bad boy. That's exactly what you need. Um, (laughs) Which is hard because the, um, I can't remember the name of the character in The Taming of the Shrew, but he's an arsehole. He is, Um, Is it Petruchio? Yeah, Petruchio. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's he's Patrick in this. He is, version, pa- he is so, Patrick yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah Petruchio's an arse. Like Taming of the Shrew is <laughs> Shakespeare's probably his most sexist play. It's, it's his really most, problematic. It's his most explicitly sexist play in the fact that the story is basically, "Hey, woman, you better behave." Um, it, yeah. It literally, it's it's really really okay. I'll make a bold fucking statement for you. Oh, here we go. I think ten things I had about you is better than Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> I agree. Because it gives Kat, or Catherine, Catherine mm. or Kate, whatever mm. version you want to go from the, from the original things. Mm. In, the, in the play, she's just a mouthy woman. Mm. And that's uncomfortable. <laughs> she just, yeah. And I think the thing they give her in the, in, the, in the story is that she talks too much. You're like, is that it? Yeah, she's rude and she talks too much. She's not social. Well, who gives a fuck if she's not social? Yeah. Christ. But in the film, she's an actual 
angry feminist teenager who's mm. surrounded by assholes and her teacher isn't really engaging properly with her because it's like the whole oh I think they set her a task like to re rewrite a sonnet or something mm. and she's like do you want it in iambic, iambic pentameter this is you, you you joke with me right you're, you're taking the piss and like no I'm really looking forward to this assignment get out yeah and it's a little <laughs> joke about oh she's you know it's like no she can't win yeah. what what she's not the bad guy this she's not like some grumpy asshole mm. she's a late nineties woman up against society. It's yeah. So I, I think it's actually better than the Shakespeare. I know it's an adaptation, but still. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It, it takes a lot of the the elements that were fine in the or, or you know who who knows maybe there were people in the fifteen hundreds who were like no fuck this shit. Um, but uh, it, it takes the elements that nowadays would be very uncomfortable and finds a way to massage them in so the the story is still recognizable but it gives it places <coughs> the agency much more in cat's hands and yeah uh like mentioned heath ledger um you have um fuck what's her name julia styles julia styles, there julia we go. styles yeah. uh you have julia mm. styles as cat and doing just a really great performance like really having to walk that line between being kind of unlikable in certain scenes in just that mm. kind of slightly too abrasive uh way but ultimately being like extremely charming and and her chemistry with heath ledger is so great um mm. you've got like a very baby joseph gordon levitt um in there uh, mm -hmm. it's it's a really like well put together t uh cast it's very much in the vein of um clueless which obviously is another adaptation of a, a classical novel but i think it, it is one of the few things that came post clueless and post uh baz Luhrmann, romeo and juliet that actually takes takes full advantage and uses it to make a a really good film rather than just saying we know this formula is successful so we're gonna mm. shit another one out kind of thing um and yeah i think it, it uses there's there's little nods towards Shakespeare like throughout it in terms of like the setting mm -hmm. and character names and stuff, but it t manages to take one of his less appealing plays and turn it into something that is just just a, a pure enjoyable cinematic treat. Definitely. And as you mentioned, they literally study Shakespeare at school and heard yeah. the, the ten things I hate about you. Uh, thing is, a, is rewriting one of his son sonnets as like a class assignment, and sh that's how she kind of like reveals to Patrick that she still loves him and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And it's like, that's a clever way of doing it. And again, another film. I was, I was a teenager. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> I, I didn't know it was Shakespeare, even though they're studying Shakespeare in the literal film. <laughs> and, 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 then, and at the end, David Crumholtz dresses up as Shakespeare to go to the prom. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what 15 year old jack doesn't know what's going on he has no idea <laughs> but yeah yeah i absolutely love 10 things i hate about you and i remember mm -hmm. it being one of those classic kind of teen films and i think it might have even been something we watched in english class because we could get away with it because it's a shakespeare adaptation <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, okay it's christmas you can watch a film but it has to be relevant and you're like <laughs> okay uh how do we get around this 10 things i hate about you there's like there's like 
sex and smoking and cool things. Yeah. There's, there's just Matt in Routines. the corner banging on his desk going, thrown off blood. <laughs> <laughs> I would never win that argument. Uh, yeah, but I... Um, I, I rewatched it fairly recently. Like a, a group of us were doing kind of uh, lockdown movie nights and yeah. doing a lot of teen films of that era. And some of them have really not held up. And and Ten Things has like there's a few moments where you're like, mm, if you made this now, like with twenty years kind of down the line, you'd kind of make a few changes. But for the like most the part, Rasta character. Well, that they are. They are laughed at in the film, like true. They are true. they are mocked for being white rasters in the film uh, as the teacher. Still don't think at you can go with it now. At, at one point, just goes, "Don't even get me started on you two. That's true. Um, yes, but yeah, uh, whether you would include them at all nowadays uh, isn't. It's isn't it's the Mean Girls mindset. The the there are you, you, the the core is still really really good, but there are mm. bits you go, "That's a bit of time." Yeah, um, it's weird to be that just as just to talk film shit for a few seconds. Not on this Gil- podcast, Matthew. Fuck off. Oh, sorry. Just to talk about poster aesthetic for a minute. Thank you. That's still film shit. Um, no, Gil Junger, uh, the... Um, I don't know if his name's pronounced that way. I just wanted to pronounce that way. He could be like Gil Junger. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, <laughs> and you went as German as you possibly could. Gil Junger. Gil Junger. Um, <laughs> so the director, this is his directorial debut, and I'm really fascinated by that because it's really competently made. Mm. And if you look at his his uh, his record after that, he don't make nothing good. He's American, so I doubt it's uh Gil Junger. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Gil Junger. Um, but the point is that he um he's made a lot of TV movie stuff, including and, a and Christmas the, film, I want to say. Yeah. And the called, classic Black Knight, everybody's favourite. Oh, Black Knight with Martin Lawrence, yeah. <laughs> that's Martin right. Lawrence film, yeah. Exactly. Maybe that was the, derailed everything. But there was a cancelled film based on, weirdly enough, Ten Things I Had About You, sort of called 10 Things I Had About Life um, with Evan Rachel Wood, which was cancelled for many reasons. One of those like, projects that got really close and then just fell apart at the last minute. And they got, I think they got like concept art and all those bits and pieces for it. But it's it's still very weird in existence. And it's like, wait, so let me get this straight. You were going to try and do another 10 Things I Had About You, <laughs> but call it something else and not make it a sequel, not bring anyone back. That's weird. Well, they also they also made a Ten Things I Hate About You series, which I yes. have never seen and find a deeply like odd concept. Um, I find it so weird that we're getting all these fucking TV shows based on like, for one about a phrase like a one-off film based on the entire concept of that thing is the the relationship between Patrick and Cat. Yeah. Mm. As soon as that's over, that's not the film and that's a whole other thing. Yeah. And like, yeah. the one that always yeah. fascinated me was the From Dusk Till Dawn. I was like, <laughs> that film is entirely built around the gimmick that like, whoops, it's vampires, but you didn't know it was vampires <laughs> until it's vampires. Mm. Yeah. As soon as you know it's vampires, you're fucking done. How are you making a TV series out of this thing? How are you making a TV series out of a, not what, 90 something minute film that, that says that all has, it needs to has say. has an explicit time frame in its title. If, the film but, runs <laughs> from dusk until dawn, and then it's exactly. over. Exactly. <laughs> and then 10 Things I Hear About You is very clearly like built around the structure of her writing the poem at the end, and then that's the ending. Unless you drag out that middle bit for fucking hours and hours, as I'm sure they did, because mm. mm-hmm. fuck the hacks of Hollywood and television <laughs> at this point. But... <laughs> Oh yeah, or, or dragging you, out a, a perfectly good ninety whatever hundred minute film into 
let's make a 22 episode American series or whatever the fuck like or even a Netflix like 10 or 12 episode mm. fuck off with that shit unless you've got something interesting to say or you're doing something different where you're not just taking the thing and merging the story and making mm. it like longer sure. if you do a side series I don't know like Watchmen or something that mm. is not just an adaptation of the fucking Zack Snyder film or in the comic the it's a whole other thing it's set in that world it's kind mm. of influenced by it it's neither here nor there in a way it's kind of clever fuck that direct adaptation of films into TV shows <laughs> do you mean anyway. in a weird way <laughs> like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead which mm. is based on one line from Hamlet. They did an entire separate pl- film, basically. I thought it was based with... on Lion King 3. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is the based Adventures on... The Adventures of Timon and Pumma. A yeah. book or a play? I can't remember. But the point is, that it, it's, it's, it's Tim Roth and, and Gary Oldman being awesome and it's very cool as a little thing. But it's, it's again, it doesn't affect the main play. You don't necessarily need to know the main play, but it works as a, as a, as a separate thing, as a play, brought to life as a film, etc. So I think, as Jack said, you can do more in that world. That's fine. Don't stretch out a load of other bullshit. Agreed. That was 10 Things I Hate About You. To take us home with our, what's probably our most faithful adaptation. Yeah, it is. Uh, At least in terms of language. Jack, what is your pick? Surprise, surprise, it's the most modern of the... (laughs) I feel like we've all done very matt tim and jack things here <laughs> i think like, so <laughs> matt uh let me guess you're gonna pick a kurosawa thing from the 50s maybe <laughs> hey tim are you gonna go for some kind of like esoteric clever like <laughs> 90s, dramedy, rom-com. 90s yeah. rom-com thing? <laughs> maybe hey jack you know pick something from like a, a kind of genre director from like the, the 2010s <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> We've all perfectly epitomized ourselves <laughs> in our Shakespearean picks, I think. <laughs> um, and yeah, mine is 2012's Much Ado About Nothing. And funny enough, even John Scarrett and you guys, because I just <laughs> wrote Much Ado About Nothing in the thing, and you're like, oh yeah, the Kenneth Browner and Denzel Washington. And I was like, no, 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 what are you talking about? No, 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 not that one. Even though that film got- is good. Oh, it yeah, is yeah. Aside from having a woefully miscast Keanu Reeves in it. <laughs> Keanu Reeves is so It doesn't matter because Emma Thompson film. and Kenneth Branagh are so well cast. Yes. They are. Matter. They yeah. are. They are. And speaking of cast, that is exactly what made me enjoy this film. Oh, yeah. And the reason I, I particularly want to talk about this one is because, as you said, Tim, it's one of the most faithful in terms of language. And that is something... As you said earlier, Matt, I have always struggled with it. I always found that as a barrier. And mm. I find it so much easier if somebody translates it into modern English <laughs> or even in Japanese and then they modernize it and make it more contemporary and more sure. understandable and more digestible to my... Less, less ornate. Less ornate mm. and less kind mm. of ye olde Englishy kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I've always struggled with that because it's just... It just kind of takes me out of the thing. You're like, oh, it's set in the night. Imagine if 10 Things I Hate About You and they're all literally doing Shakespeare lines in this 90s teen drama and comedy thing. And I'm like, I can't, I can't imagine that working. And it just sounding really stilted and weird. And I felt the exact <laughs> same way about this film going into it. I was really worried because I saw the trailer and heard like, oh, okay, Joss Whedon... I mean, 
not a great guy. Let's let's be real here. At the I time, know. he was great. We were all yeah. fine with it. He was high off the Avengers. He was fucking on top of the yep. world at that point. But uh, yeah. yeah, I know we've 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 had some controversy for calling certain male <laughs> celebrities out. But Joss Whedon, not a great guy. I fucking love some of his work, and yeah, but not a great guy. Turns out he's a real uh, adulterous misogynistic piece of shit anyway before all that happened the lovely year of the avengers in 2012 <laughs> yeah. i remember when that was a that was a lovely time and i went to see the avengers uh, like really early in the morning and the day of release and it's all great and stuff and then joss whedon's making a shakespeare adaptation that's faithful basically just ripping off the cast of all of his previous projects you've <laughs> got half of the cast of firefly a bunch of people from Avengers, a bunch of people from Dollhouse, everything else, yeah. basically. Uh, Dollhouse and fucking... You mentioned Frank Kranz earlier, like mm. he shows up. Mm-hmm. You've got Sean Marr and Nathan Fillion and Alexis Denisov from Buffy and, and Avengers. Ashley Johnson from Video <laughs> Game, who's now a very prolific voice actress. Amy Acker, of course, who's a, who's a regular with um, mm. Joss Whedon as well. And it's like... Wait, what? It's all these all these amazing casts of things I love mashed up into this one thing by a director I love. Oh, and it's all shot in his house in black and white using Shakespearean dialogue. And I was like, fuck. You had me, then you <laughs> lost me. It should be the most ostracizing thing. It yeah. should be like, we're watching a black and white movie about an independent director and, who's yeah. come from television. Shot, shot on a budget of like... Nothing, basically. Yeah. In his house in California. Uh, yeah, literally in his house that was, de- I think, was designed by his wife. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so. like when he, when they first like designed, when she first designed it and he talked about it, I was like, I really want to film something here because his house is amazing. Mm. And going by this film, that house is fucking amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to just walk around that house because it's kind of spectacular. But it's all based around like they basically have this party in J- Joss Whedon's house and all the various characters cross over. And for, for all intents and purposes, it's a very faithful adaptation of it. There's a couple of changes in the way yeah, that of sort of Benedict and Beatrice interact and, and the way those... Like I, I saw a clip of Joss Whedon talking about how... When Beatrice finds out that Benedict is in love with her and vice versa, he's able to shoot it from her perspective and have that like in in the other way. So you can see it from both sides. Whereas mm. usually in the play, it's very one-sided and you don't really get both sides of the perspective. Um, but it's only little things like that. Apart from that, it's a fairly faithful adaptation. And it is just kind of the charm of the whole thing that kind of mm-hmm. lets it get away. And I, I, I really should hate it. It's pretentious wankery that I should hate, <laughs> but I can't help but love it. The cast is fucking phenomenal. They're all just look like they're having a great time and just hanging out and just being mates and shooting thing on a shoestring budget that they filmed in like a week and a half in, in their mate's house, basically. And if like if Matt had done this, it'd be like, oh, well, that's a really cool, like independent film thing. Mm-hmm. It just happens that one of the biggest directors, <laughs> arguably the biggest director in the world in 2012, who had made one of the biggest films ever in Avengers, mm-hmm. suddenly went, 
yeah, I'll just pay my mates for a for a couple of weeks. I'll just chuck like a few million dollars at my friends. Come over for a couple of days, we'll shoot at my house. Come, yeah, exactly, yeah. And yeah. Like, talking about the filming process, it's literally him like <clears throat> scooting around on his hands and knees in his kitchen with a camera in his hand or they had mm. the blanket cam, which is one of the few like actual moving shots in the entire film where they just pushed a blanket with a camera on it across <laughs> the kitchen floor <laughs> with a mop. And I'm like... That's such cool indie filmmaking shit that I love. Yeah. And seeing the behind yeah. the scenes of all of this and like the interviews with the cast of like, oh, how did you all meet? And hey, Clark Gregg, the, the guy, he's um, Agent Coulson from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the, the Marvel films and stuff. Um, he's Leonardo and he's kind of introduced as the newbie to the Whedonverse because you've got mm. Nathan Fillion and Denisoff and Acker and all the people that have known each other for decades at this point. Yeah. And they're like, ah, Clark, welcome to the crew and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> And it just seems like they're all having such a great time. And it just, I just kind of get swept up in the whole charm of it all. And it's really weirdly shot in some places and, and really like there's a weird like Cirque du Soleil thing in the garden at one point for no reason. You're like, <laughs> cool, okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's like weird... Is simultaneously contemporary and not contemporary and like this weird oh it's a kind of a hollywood party where there's weird shit going on but it's also shakespearean dialogue mm-hmm. <laughs> god it's so weird it, none of it should work together but for some reason i love it and i don't know why <laughs> i think that the combination of the fact that it's shot in black and white and although it's contemporary, everyone's dressed quite form because it's kind of like a fancy party. Everyone's just kind of in yes. suits and dresses. And then you have the Shakespearean dialogue. It feels weirdly timeless. Like yes, it feels like you could so. not pin down when it is meant to be set exactly. Um, and I think that's that's probably intentional. Um, but yeah, like he's, I mean, Whedon has basically said like it was, he had just, I think, finished kind of editing um, Avengers which was obviously the most huge project, you know, that he had ever worked on, you know, one of the largest, you know, biggest, most complex films to bring home of all time um, that had then been a huge success. And he he basically filmed this as like a holiday. Um, Yeah, it was was a contractual... like to break from yeah. from his uh Mar- like a disney marvel like contract at the time mm. so he he had to take a break. you've done this thing you've shot it all as you said he was editing he was in post-production all this kind of stuff you have to take a break and he's like well fuck it i've got 12 days yeah. <laughs> let's just shoot a film because yeah. why not and he had done uh, uh a lot of shakespeare readings at that house before in fact it's one of the reasons of that, course he had um, <laughs> like uh spoilers for season five of angel uh in case you haven't <laughs> seen it but uh when when fred gets killed off and becomes illyria like one of the reasons that he did that is because he had seen amy acker play um i want to say like titania in in a midsummer mm. night's dream because he'd, he'd literally like done a like let you know everyone just come around we're gonna just like do a shakespeare reading for fun yeah um and had seen her play this kind of fucking icy cold. hollywood wankers am yeah I right? good lord <laughs> um, let's just do a shakespeare reading for fun good lord do you know what i it, it is pretentious but i would not i if i knew a bunch of actors and like had a fancy house i would absolutely be doing the same stuff (laughs) except mine would be like we're gonna come around and we're gonna do a staged reading of demolition man yeah uh (laughs) see that's the kind of shit i can get behind yeah you do know a lot of actors tim (laughs) (laughs) i just don't have a fancy house (laughs) 
we have a park, sir, <laughs> and social distancing. Um, I, I think th this is kind of the key point here. And, and Jack's really hit it on the head. He doesn't know why he likes this movie, <laughs> but he likes it. And yep. the key thing is... With, it's true of most things. Like, oh, I don't the really like Dostoy. It is Jack not knowing things. That's <laughs> the theme of the whole episode. <laughs> no, it's more like that. If I said, I'm going to teach you about Dostoyevsky, and you're like, oh, fuck off. No, I don't care about Russian literature. You put it in a way people can absorb, and they go, actually, I really fucking enjoyed that. It's, it's who brings it to you, who introduces it to you, whether it's a friend or someone you respect. In the same way that when you first get into films as a kid, and we all do this. We're all guilty of it. Some people are still guilty of it. Um, but you say, I like this. I like this movie. This must mean that this actor is the best actor in the world. And I watch every single movie they've ever made, even if it's shit. And I'll tell myself it's the best movie ever made. And then you realize, oh, no, no, I don't like everything they made. It must have been the director. And you watch that director's everything with the director's made. And that's like, that's the best director in the world. And you go, oh, no, that's shit too. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and you realize people are, you know, mercurial. But the point is, if you have a base of individuals or a concept that you really appreciate and enjoy, and it's presented to you in a format, you go, actually, I could get on with this. That can hook you for life. You, I mean, put it this way. Everybody hates Shakespeare to start with because it's forced upon you in school but, and it's by people who tell you it's good and they tell you it's funny and then you read it and think, it's neither, it's fucking dull. But then one thing gets through to you and whether that's a teen high school drama or a samurai feudal movie or a thing by a bunch of people that you recognise from TV going, fuck, Dogbury is an awesome, bumbling idiot <laughs> Nightwatch guy played by Nathan Fillion, I love this something will get through to you and you'll suddenly go, shit, I like Shakespeare. And that's the moment, I think. That's how the Hollywood elite get you, Matt. That's how they get <laughs> that's you. That's how they get you. That's how they get you on the casting captain. Nope, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> considering how I get it, it's like, we'll get everyone over for a Shakespearean reading, reading of Shakespeare. Yeah... Is that and, all that happened, and, Whedon, and you piece yeah, of shit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're talking about casting couches and Joss We'll Whedon read the is, role uh, of, uh, of, of... We'll do Othello. Okay. And I'm going to... You can play Desdemona. Okay. And I'm going to fucking put a pillow over your face. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. It's kind of creepy. Let's do the death oh, scene. Let's, let's, let's not do that. Um, no, I, I think it is, like everything in life, who introduces you to stuff. You can hate comics, but then someone that you respect as a friend or a family member says, no, no, okay, okay, okay. You, you, you don't like the tights and capes read from hell or something. And you go, oh shit. And you get a, you, something mm. will get you in. I don't like this band. I don't like this type of music. I don't like this type of thing. Don't worry. There's one song that makes you go, oh, actually, I really do like, I don't know, Mongolian throat singing. And you're like, oh, I just, I just didn't, and then, you know, here's the who, as in <laughs> H-U, not the who, the, the British band. And you're like, oh, fucking guitars under this. Oh, shit, I recognize this from that Star Wars game. I think I like this stuff. It's like, yes, welcome to Mongolian music. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's just what gets you in the door, basically. And once you go from there, you can go, oh, are there other, other plays like this? And again, for us and our generation specifically, I've got to say it, I know there were lots of examples, but it really was Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Leonardo DiCaprio with these badass fucking cars shooting a gun and unfortunately 
Scream and Scream 2 and, and Romeo and Juliet gave us some good Jamie Kennedy performances. Fuck Jamie Kennedy! Yeah. <laughs> but he is pretty Jamie good Kennedy. in those films, especially Romeo and Juliet, because he's a fucking dick. Um, I think that, that it's like, oh, give me my broadsword. He's reaching for a shotgun! He's called broadsword, <laughs> but it's a shotgun! Clack, clack, motherfucker! This would be great! What's that? They go to a fucking fancy dress party in drag? Oh, this is amazing! I'm so confused and amazed! Yes, what? Wait, wait, Paul Rudd, you timeless fucking time traveler, what are you doing here? <laughs> With all these teenagers. What are you doing here? Why are you an astronaut? Ant-Man? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's what gets you in the door, what gets you into it. Now, that doesn't mean you'll like everything, because God knows if I say, go watch some Laurence Olivier, because it is good, because it is good, you may go, oh my God, this is very black and white, and this is very Shakespeare. And I want to die. <laughs> like, would you want to see Mel Gibson do it? <laughs> We've spoken about how versatile Shakespeare is and how foundational he is to so much to our to in the sure. English language and to storytelling, you know, uh, and how he took uh, <clears throat> elements from other, you know, storytales and folktales and, you know, verbal traditions and brought them together into these new forms that then persisted and became these cornerstones of the yeah. Western literary tradition. And so that does mean that there's a Shakespeare adaptation out there for you because <laughs> A, there's so nice, many, nice. and B, there's like, hey, do you like stories? Then you'll probably <laughs> like Shakespeare in some form or another because yeah. so much at the foundation of of what we think of when we think about kind of storytelling and drama and mm. comedy, you know, it's, you know, even, you know, comedy, it's, there's, there's wordplay, there's dick jokes, you know, there's, <laughs> if you've got the right director, then there's Pratt Falls in there too. You know, I think, you know, going back to, to much ado, you know, one of the great joys of that is seeing Alexis Denihoff, Denisov be a blowhard and fall about the place like yes. which he's very good at yeah. um and then also like tackling shakespearean dialogue which he's also great at and it's you know Get, getting told off for having a beard then shaving because a beard makes you a man and then shaving off because the girl might not like the yeah. beatrice is like mocks his beard like well i'll just shave it off then yeah and now i'm a clean shaven boy of a man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um, ridiculous. but yeah i think you know that the fact that there's so much variety really mm. speaks to how the power of Shakespeare and, you know, as much as there's plenty of other stories out there that, you know, we should be giving time to, there's a reason Shakespeare's persisted. Yeah, and will continue to. I Definitely. think well, the one I tend to to say, if people say, like, it's usually, because women are just more mature with shit, unfortunately. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but they fucking are. So most of the time it'll be like some kid will say, oh, throne of blood, eh, am I not, or whatever. What can I want? What can I read? And said, and I always turn around and say, Titus Andronicus. <laughs> Titus. There's a, there's a one with Anthony Hopkins. Okay. Yeah. Go read that one. Why? It's fucking Game of Thrones, mate. Yeah. <laughs> he, he bakes the kids in a pie and feeds them to her. And it's like, what, what? It's like, yeah, and it's Shakespeare. So you can get away with that mad shit and it's Shakespeare. Cuts off his daughter's hands, but sticks in there. And she goes, Argh! she cuts her tongue off. It's horrible. It's 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 his most, you know, slasher blockbuster nonsense for the stage, to to get the the the, the pundits in. Go go read that. 
so the, as as Tim said, there will be a version of everything for everyone because it's it's you got tragedy, you got comedy, you got history, in 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 broad terms. So yeah. <laughs> so to wrap us all up, I have a mini little game for you guys. Ooh. What? To tie it back into some classic sequelizers action, I turn to our dear dear friends at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh God! Okay. And I don't want scores from you. I want to tell you of the three that we've picked. That is 2012's Much Do About Nothing, oh, okay. Throne of Blood, mm-hmm. and Ten Things I Hate About You. From yeah. highest score to lowest score on the tomatometer. Oh. What do you reckon, Matthew Stockton? <laughs> Throne of Blood is the best. That's is what it the, the highest is? rated according to critics? That is the question. Yes, <laughs> I, I I imagine it probably is. I would be shocked if it wasn't because critically speaking in terms of just longevity of film pretension shall we say it's definitely gonna be that one um that's not the one actually i think i I think i can clean sweep this if i'm being very arrogant okay i think throne of blood is the best because it's it's historical cinematic history it's it's an important film from an important director so there'll be no real contemporary reviews that aren't going to be like fawning all over kurosawa so 100 or 95 or 90 or something really high like that with regards to the other two it's very tricky i think with much do about nothing i think it'd be so refreshing for people to think oh look he made avengers and he made all that money but look he made a shakespeare so i think it'd be higher than it may or may not should be i, I rated it very high as a critic at the time I think 10 Things I Heard About You is really, really good and deserves to be higher, but I bet you because it was 90s and because it was teen fiction, enough people wouldn't have understood and gone, oh, it's very on the nose. So I'm going to say it goes without any specific numbers, I guess. Throne of Blood, Much Ado, 10 Things I Heard About You. I could be wrong about the last two, but yeah. Tim, any ideas? Any any uh, I, disagreements or agreements with? I Matt? mean, I would, I would, I would heartily agree with most of Matt's sentiments there. For variety, I'm going to say switch over Much Ado and Ten Things because yeah, I think I, that there's yeah. a there's a chance that uh, much as we joked about it here, I think that that Whedon could potentially get hit for being both a little bit too insular, like oh, he's just got all his mates to do it, and yes, a little bit yes. kind of pretentious with the black and white and and those kind of things. So. Uh, whereas there's a chance that at, even at the time, ten things got recognised as like, yeah, there's a lot of teen movies about, but this is so much better than fucking like American Pie two kind of thing. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, so yeah, and yeah. Whedon's direction, as we mentioned, was very shot, very shot. There wasn't much about it in terms of camera movement, so it could have been quite. It's not flat to watch, in my opinion, but I yeah. could see a lot of critics saying that it was. Yeah. So yeah, so that's 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 mostly for the sake of variety. But um, that—that's my prediction. You probably should have ignored variety because Matt has got his spot on. Shit. Uh, <laughs> Throne of Blood is the highest rated at an appropriately ninety-five percent. I'm I'm a little surprised. I thought it'd be higher because again, I mean, it's a classic don't, cinema. Don't bash people... Kurosawa, do yeah. they? No. It's just, that's just not done. Damn fucking right, in, they don't. Film critics. Um, <clears throat> not enough next, of course, is Much Ado About Nothing with 86%, which I think is pretty... I would say that's maybe a I like it, but high, it's a bit higher than I thought it was going to be. That's higher than I expected as well. And lower than I would like to think, but still pretty nice. 69% for 10 <laughs> Things I Hate About You. But also bullshit. Yeah, that, that, that should, should be 80 Nice, top. but yeah. fuck you. 
<laughs> so yeah, that was a that was an interesting little game, and I, it's fairly predictable. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and a, an interesting little spread of numbers there. So there we go. If you want to let us know about your favorite or the the one that <coughs> got you into Shakespeare, like my, maybe my mm. example, hit us up on various social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can hit us up on the Discord. You can hit us up by email, sequelizers at gmail.com. Just type sequelizers into any social media and you'll find us. It's nice and easy. You can also go to sequelizers.com, the link to the Discord, the link to all the social media, and the link to our shop and Patreon on there as well. So all of your possible sequelizing needs are available in one little lovely website package for you. Of course... You can contact us directly. I am JLW Chambers on social media if you want to argue about Joss Whedon with me because <laughs> God, do I love Firefly. And I like Dollhouse more than most people, more than I probably should. But, oh, he's a piece of shit. And <laughs> yeah, I can't be dealing with that. Uh, Matt, how can people contact you on the internet? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. On the various social media platforms, please feel free to... <sighs> talk to me if you want also like around on the discord obviously uh you can go to the raid right hand for my film reviews you can go to cheese reviews are back they are back baby yeah with tenet <laughs> because i'm very Cinemas carefully that's a sort of a thing again mm, very carefully going back to the cinema being very very cautious and they're being very safe but equally like everything in the world right now it could quite easily lock back down again and go all back into some horror so i don't know how long it's continuing for but i'll keep doing it while i can um you can also go to cheeseman.com to see the various things that I make. Put up a recent trailer for the new, well, a lot of future, like future years of Super Happy Kill Time, tons of stuff in there. Um, and yeah, various bits and pieces that way. Tim! Yo. Uh, wherefore art thou, Tim? Ooh. <laughs> I art on Twitter uh, at uh, trivia underscore lad, and I will happily converse in iambic pentameter with anyone who comes at me <laughs> that's a bold claim your, your next 280 characters have to be an iambic pentameter that's going to be tricky yeah that's going to be difficult was that about Emily Dickinson writing in common verse or common time whatever it was so that you can do almost all of her song or songs all of her poetry to the poker rap yes <laughs> yeah and that's the there, danger there's a couple of things that work like I can, there, there is a famous hip hop song that is similar to Iambic Pentameter. Yeah. So you can put a bunch of shit. It's like it's a notorious B.I.G. single song yeah. or something like that. Carl, Carl is always talking about the nature of, yeah. of, of rhythm and, and timing and that stuff. And there is a nod to it in 10 Things I Head About You, where they say a yes. sonic. It's like, oh, what? And all the audience <laughs> go, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, my the, God. The, the teacher guy. Oh, I'm talking yeah. about an old white dude, but Shakespeare knew his shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Ah, better than 69%, 10 things. Yeah, 69% is criminal. Classic. And of course, we can't finish this episode without saying a little thank you to our executive producers. I don't know why I said it like that. I just did. <laughs> yeah, a barely a, very a thank, thank you. you. <laughs> a little... Got to bring them out for a curtain call. Exactly. Yes, yeah. an encore. Go. There we go. A Shakespearean encore, if you will, for our executive producers. Mr. Stuart Main. Mr. Jonathan Firth-Clark. And, last but by no means least, Mike Salvia. 
Having been Thank to the theatre a lot, I fucking hate how much you have to clap. In a cinema, you just leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people who clap at the cinema can fuck off. And and unless there's a director Q and A exactly, the room, I've applauded it when it's been fuck yes. off. But I've never sat there and thought. It's the screening, and the guy is here, and he's going to do <laughs> yeah. the Q and A afterwards. He's in the front row. You can literally see him. Fine, clap. If he's not in the room, or she is not in the room, or whatever. Oh fucking clap. Would you like to know a horror story? Yes. Someone clapped at our Batman v Superman screening years ago. Fuck off. <laughs> to coin a one phrase person. of my own catchphrase, fuck right off. Yeah, one person and everyone everyone turned around and went, even people enjoy it, went, fuck are you doing? It's like, <laughs> me and my friends audibly gasped multiple times in that film. But not a good gasp, not a gasp no, of no, wonder. No, 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 like, oh God, what's this shit? <laughs> the gasp of stepping on a tack. My friends who don't give a shit about Batman were like, what is this flying in a well full of bats, bollocks? I don't need this in my life. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one of my friend's wives saying, wait, who was that? And I was like, that's Wonder Woman. That's Wonder Woman? Really? <laughs> like, oh Yeah. They don't actually say it anyway. Anyway, Guys, this is what we're doing. You're getting too to deep. into a Batman versus Superman. <laughs> don't get me. As soon as you mention fucking Snyder films, I go off on this fucking Very tangent. True. I can't Very help it. Always dangerous. Jack enters a fugue state. And just, <laughs> just, and just wakes up off. naked in a 7-Eleven somewhere. And it's like, what happened? I just hulk out with rage and just wake up somewhere, just covered in the blood of my enemies. Who it's like, like a Slayer fanboys. carved his arm. It's a Snyder carved yeah. into his arm with a compass. Exactly. Snyder. On that note, before I go off into another rage-fueled tangent, <laughs> thank you much for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week with more interseason goodness. Until then, see you later. Shakespeare, bye-bye. <laughs>